Well, while I transition real quickly, would you open up in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2? And if you look at it briefly, you're going to think, what in the world is, does this have to do with Christmas? And I promise you, we'll get there. This has everything to do with Christmas. But as we get started, we're going to continue our series called The Love Story. Uh, looking at the journey of redemption from Ruth all the way through to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you weren't here for our study of Ruth last month, we learned a whole lot of things about Ruth. But at the end of the day, the big teachable moment, well, there's three of them. First, God is in control. Whether we acknowledge him or not, he is still at work. That's truth one. Truth two, God loves people. God loves people. And truth three, God loves and uses broken people to draw us back to himself. We need to understand that about Ruth because it's the key to understanding even the very family line of Jesus Christ. Oh, a Moabite, a Moabite outcast that happened to be a woman with no country and no land says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. God redeems Naomi, an undeserving mother-in-law, and uses Ruth to find his, her kinsman redeemer, a man named Boaz, who gave through Ruth was fathered a son named Obed, who fathered a son named Jesse, who fathered a son named David, who became a man after God's own heart. But again, in this story of redemption, rarely are they clean. Because in this love story of redemption, God shows us a man after his own heart, a man that almost all of the time sought earnestly after God, could still fall prey to the toils and lusts of this world, drawing him into adultery, eventually murder, into bad parenting. And we'll get into that. We're going to look at David's life this summer. And we can all learn from, again, the simple fact that God continues to work through broken people. Which brings me to a question. If I asked you point blank, is our world broken? Most everybody would say, well, it's not as good as it could be or some derivative of that. But often our next response is, woe is us that we have to live through all this. And that's not so different from the perspective we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 2. And what I'd like you to do is I would like you to try to feel the emotion that goes with the writing of this psalm. So I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read it slowly. If you've got your own Bible or digital device that allows you to read the Bible, feel free to read it along with me. Um, Otherwise, just listen and consider the depth of what is being written here. This is, many believe this is a continuation of Psalm 1. It seems to have very similar literary type to it. Uh, But let's pick up in Psalm chapter 2. Verse 1. Sounds awfully familiar. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. (laughs) 
The one in heaven, enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, these can be kind of confusing words and confusing times for us. But I pray that this morning your words be spoken and that our hearts would be softened to the message of the Messiah, our King, and to the charge upon us and how we live in this broken world. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, when you read a psalm like this, it can be a little bit confusing because one, it doesn't feel very Christmassy, does it? No, it doesn't. That's on purpose. But bear with me and we'll get there, like I said. But the second thing is, it it sounds like it's a mix of a couple of different types of prophetic words versus normal words. This was typed what was called a coronation song. In other words, many people felt this was a song rejoicing in the installation of a king and rejoicing in that God is in control and has put his king right where he wants them. And that had a very present day feel to it when this was written. But it also has a feel to it of a not yet happened. In Christianese, we call that a prophetic tone. Something that will come about later and happen later on that will bring about the fulfillment of what is being said now. This psalm resides in the middle of those two places. It is both a present moment psalm and what we call a messianic psalm, written to prepare us for what God is doing and what he's already done and continuing to do. And so we have to read it with that lens. And as we read it with that lens, it should excite us. Because when I think about the first part of this, why do the nations rage? Oops. It's, it gives me a tale of misplaced confidence. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look around at geopolitics in the world right now. The guy that is leading the race to become the future president of America, depending on who you ask, wants to build a wall and keep out any immigrants, specifically those that might be Islamic or Syrian or any other people he doesn't like. He's building his own kingdom and he feels America needs to be shut off from the world. So we've got him over there. Now, do I think he's going to get elected? No, but I'm not living there, so I don't know all that's going on. But then just to our north, 
we've got another nation that is claiming land that they say is theirs, and this is not my desire to debate whether that's true or not, but adding to that, they're enlarging their territory by building these false islands to enrich their defense and protect and restrict potentially restrict waterways and trade that goes through. So there's another area that's raising up their own kingdom and doing things on their own terms. And this kingdom that's being raised up was started with a man named Chairman Mao that boldly and repeatedly said there is no God. Uh, And while he didn't get along with another leader to his north, Stalin, Stalin was another that continually sought to raise an empire devoid of God. Then we move over to Europe. And Europe was known to have brought us through to the Enlightenment, brought us through to some of the great times in church history. If you question that, just go and look at the cathedrals and the architecture and the devotion that was supposedly put into adoring and worshiping our God and our King. But somewhere along the lines, we lost the plot and thought it became about how the laws are followed rather than the relationship with the living God. And Europe became the first area of the world to become a post-Christian society where Christ had begun to be pushed more and more out of the daily life. And America has followed suit and we have pushed God. If you look at any of our money, oddly enough, it says in God we trust. It does not say in God's we trust. It does not say any number of other things. It says on my dollar, in fact, I have one in my wallet. It says in God we trust. But if you look at how decisions are made in my home country, that would not be true. Well, let's come a little closer to home. We don't have an official national religion here in Hong Kong, which some think is a great thing. You know why? 18 to 20 red days a year because we observe all the holidays. (laughs) Have you noticed? We get Christmas off. We get Boxing Day off. So that covers our Christianity and also Easter. But then we have our grave sweeping ceremonies and we have these ceremonies and these ceremonies to cover our other religions. So we cover all the bases. There's a fancy apologetic term for that. And you know what that is? It's called syncretism. When we try to cover them all and bridge them together and hope that one of them is right. But what it does is it invalidates the whole thing. Because Jesus Christ so clearly told us that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through Buddha. Not through Taoism. Not through Allah, not through ourselves. All of these kingdoms that are being sought to be built up all over the world are causing a couple of things in all reality. And it starts with rage. Have you noticed an increase in rage in the world? Some of you may say, no, people don't seem any more angry today. That's fine. If you talk to them in person, maybe that's true. Just go read a blog. Have you noticed how bold people are when they post something online now? That it has become, uh, it's, it's a big English word, but vitriolic, where it actually becomes so devastating and abusive that lives have been taken out of what is said in this public sector anonymously called the internet. 
People have gotten so comfortable raging against anyone that doesn't share their beliefs on anything that it has led to this language of abuse in any language it's spoken in, whether English, Chinese, uh, Tagalog, any, but it's just anger. And my question today is, why are we surprised by this? When we continue to see God pushed out of what Ravi Zacharias likes to call the public square. If God is not in the middle of society, then we ourselves are. Let me explain that real quickly. If God is not the center, if he is not the center of us moving and living and having our breathing through the very person of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we begin to think this world is all about us. And if it's all about me, then I'm going to want things my way. And I don't care how that affects you because I am the most important person in the world. The worldview that God leads us to is the exact opposite of that. The worldview that God leads us to is one of an incarnated life. What does that mean, Mike? Incarnation instant breakfast, which I had this morning? No. Incarnation is God becoming man and making his dwelling, living with us as a real human being and therefore showing us how to live. And how did he live? He didn't live as the king that we were expecting him to. He acted like the greatest king ever, but he didn't live that way. He lived as a servant. He lived with humility. He lived by going to where people didn't go. He didn't hunt out the popular people. It didn't mean he didn't listen to them. But he went to where the needs are. He didn't go to the self-righteous. He went to the poor in spirit and said, come on, come with me. And so we find this raging nation all over the world, wherever we are, at the heart of a reality that we've placed all of our confidence in ourselves. And lest we get too self-confident and what I call pharisaical, we in the church can do it too. We can perceive injustices against other branches of Christianity, against others in the own church. And instead of fighting for reconciliation, we fight to put the others down because they don't share our beliefs. Nothing has been more destructive to the gospel of Jesus Christ than Christians. I'm sorry to say that, but it is so true. How we talk about, speak about, and interact with each other tells the world who Jesus is. And if we do it by complaining and arguing and yelling at each other, that tells the world that Jesus is nothing more than another dictator and we don't have room for another one of him. Why do the nations rage? Because we keep thinking that our confidence needs to be in ourself. So how does God respond to this kind of statement? How does he respond and react to a world that thinks they've got it all figured out? Just yesterday, we solved the climate problem. Did you read that? We signed a new accord and all things in the climate issue will be over. You think? Probably not. Not while there are sinners and there are people seeking their own good before the needs of others. As long as that's going to happen, we're probably not. But God looks at this world. And I love this because H.A. Ironside, old time preacher, fun to read. But he said there's four voices that go through this psalm. Verses one through three are the world. 
the narrator giving us the perspective of the world. Verses four through six then move us over to the perspective of God, the Father. And listen to what it says here. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, what does that mean? This is the only time in the Bible it is said that God laughed. And it's not quite the laugh of, tell me that joke you know. It's a laugh of, look at them thinking they know better than me. Look at them thinking they have this all figured out and they don't need me. How dare they? Scoffing is translated there. Uh, Others have translated, he actually insults them. Go ahead, try it yourself. See how that goes for you. God, in his glorious love of us, gave us this thing called free will. And oh, how I wish he didn't. I would much rather do exactly what pleased God all the time and not even have a choice because then I would know I was bringing glory to God and my life would be right where it was supposed to be. But God loves us so much that he allows us to have choice. And that's one of the most painful things in the world because then I have to react to situations around me. And God allows me to deal with the consequences of how I react and respond to the world I find myself in. And so the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs and says, oh, those foolish people. Jesus would have said it, oh, ye of little faith, oh, you brood of vipers. He had all sorts of choice words. But God reacts to our arrogance first by laughing and scoffing. But he doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, he would just be an angry God. And God has every right, as Joe Vitale so well explained last week, God has every right to be angry with us. We are sinful. We continually and repeatedly choose ourselves over God. That's at the heart of what sin is. But God doesn't stop there. You see, not only does he laugh at our self-sufficiency, but he provides a way for us to not be drowned by it. In verse 7, we hear the king saying, you have said you are my son. Today I have become your father. And that points us to the messianic age to where God would send us a king to save us. And he did it. If you look at some of your translations, it actually in this passage uses begotten. His begotten son. My son whom I have begotten you. And does anyone remember that being found anywhere else in the Bible? If you grew up in the church? Very good. John 3.16, if you learned it the old way. And this will tell me how old you are or which version of the Bible you learned. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No doubt John was thinking back to Psalm 2 when he was pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. Because this psalm consistently by writers in the New Testament was seen as messianic. And it's amazing what happens. God reacts to our arrogance. He reacts to our self-sufficiency by giving us hope. He gave his only 
son for us. That should stop us in our tracks and just set us free. He did it out of love for us. Not only that, but he didn't just send his son son to live quietly. He sent his son to be the king, the king we need, the king we don't deserve, the righteous king. My uh, oldest child is uh, 10 years old now, and she's begun studying World War II. And it bothers her to no end that a good chunk of people would follow a man like Hitler. She just can't figure it out. And we've had many conversations about this. And she's like, but dad, he was evil. How come we couldn't see that? And finally, I had to sit down with her and and share with her that, you know, we often look for solutions to the problems of this world in charismatic or really exciting leaders. And we follow them without listening to the heart of their message. And we do it all the time. And Hitler knew exactly what to say to get people on board with him. He was a phenomenal leader. Don't mistake me for complimenting him. He was just very effective at getting people to follow him. That is not a compliment. But throughout history, time and again, people choose to follow frail, broken human leaders rather than seeking our king. And God looks up and he laughs at the self-sufficiency, but he also does something about it. I want to read to you what William Plumer had to say about what happened shortly after Christ uh, died, was resurrected, and then brought back to heaven. You see, shortly thereafter, Roman empires waged an all-out war on Christianity. And it lasted quite a while, through 30 emperors. And of those 30 Roman emperors, listen to their plight. They together came forward and said, we will put an end to the Nazarene. And that was a reference to Jesus Christ. Listen what happens when they are dealt with. Of the 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting early Christians, one became deranged after atrocious cruelty One was killed by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One strangled. One died in captivity in miserable situations. One was dead in a manner that will not bear reciting here. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his his physicians were put to death because they couldn't abide in the stench that filled his room. Two killed themselves. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish killing himself. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable, excruciating deaths. Several died of of horrible, complicated diseases. And eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoner. But my king went to the cross for sins he did not commit and rose again victoriously and is still alive today. It's an awfully different way of looking. We can follow these people that say we have no room for God in our lives and God deals with them. Whether it's now or at the judgment seat of Christ, please don't mistake the wrath of God is a real thing. 
The justice of God is real and we need it out of his great love for us as Joe shared with us last week. And so I won't repeat what she had to say, but the bottom line is God loves us so much that he deals with sin. And the ultimate way he, way he dealt with sin was by sending us a king that could pay the price that we could not pay. And so God's reaction to our arrogance is one of loving justice. His son paying the price, paying the atonement for our sins. But there's more. What is our response to be as we make our way through this psalm? It's pretty simple. I get the joy of sitting up or of standing up front and looking out at you. And I see in the back, there's a new little baby with us today. And I'm very excited and I get him first. That's all I'm going to say about that later on. But one of the greatest things when a new baby is born is to give that baby a kiss. Is it not? And just to have that little finger be held tightly. And the tenderness that comes out of kissing that little one who changes the life of the parents. Have you ever watched new parents? That little one becomes everything. Then by the second and third one, a little less so. But you know, that first one is just amazing. And there's tenderness. And it's with that sort of tenderness that we're brought to the fact that God said he would install his king over his people. The word that was actually written was pour out his king on his people. He poured out his son for us. And he says, go kiss him. Go kiss your king. Because if you don't, not only will you incur his judgment, but you'll miss the fellowship and the love that comes from me. So what do we do? What are we charged to in this psalm, in this worshipful psalm of our king? Well, let's look at these last few verses. This is the charge. Uh, Ironside believes that first the world speaks then God the Father speaks. Then we hear the Son speak. And we just heard that in verse 7. And then we get to listen in on the Holy Spirit, charging the church for the future of what to do next. Now, others have disagreed with that. I'm not telling you that's exactly, but it fits. You at least can tell there's four breaks here. And you can go with that and believe it what you want. But wise counsel is given here. And so what we see, therefore, is that we're told, therefore, you kings, you people, be wise. And he goes on to say, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Wisdom is the beginning of knowledge. Godly wisdom is bathed in humility. Godly wisdom is bathed in utter dependence on a king. Where do I get statements like this? They're called proverbs. Go read them. Read one proverb, one chapter a day, every day, and you'll be amazed at how you grow in your walk with the Lord and in your own wisdom because it's God's wisdom that comes upon you. And we're told that we are to seek that sort of wisdom. Where does that wisdom come from? Well, logical conclusion time here. We are told by this king, this king named David, that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? Psalm 119, 105? Yes, 5. And we're told time and again that God's word will guide us. And then if we flip into our Bibles to the New Testament, into the great gospel of John, 
It starts with a very simple statement. In the beginning was the word. This isn't just another book. In fact, it's not even the biggest book I own in my library. Thank you, War and Peace. You win that one. But you know what? Every page of this bleeds relationship. Every page of this points us to the fact that God has a plan for how his people are to live, function, and be drawn back to himself. And every page of this also lets us in on how God deals with it when we seem to think that we don't need him anymore. Why is so much of the Bible spent explaining the judgment that comes upon Israel and Judah? So that we can learn from their mistakes. So that we can learn that God is sovereign and continues to be at work through his king. And we are charged to learn from that. A wise person is one that can learn from their mistakes and move forward. There's even a biblical concept in there. It's called repentance. Repentance is the idea of being willing to acknowledge that we are sinful, that we have sinned, but not just saying, oh, I have sinned, but then turning away and running away from that sin, whatever it might be. So wherever you find yourselves today, this is applicable to us. If you're struggling if you know you're rebelling against what, sh- what is right and what you know to be the best way to live, seek wisdom and you will find it. That's what the God's word promises. But that's not the only thing we're told. We're also told in, in these patterns, and hopefully you've noticed between September and now, I keep trying to remind you there are patterns and rhythms throughout the scriptures that we need to make part of our lives and ask the Holy Spirit to draw us into because we're invited to serve with fear in joyful submission. And I want to read to you from another guy. Uh, some of you may have heard him, but his name is, uh, I've just forgotten it, and I put it down at the bottom, Charles Simeon another famous old-time preacher. And this is what he says about this holy fear that we're supposed to have because it's a scary thing for us to, to think that we're supposed to be afraid. That doesn't make sense when every time the angels appeared in the New Testament, their first words were, do not be afraid. But then throughout the scriptures, we're also told, be afraid. It's confusing, isn't it? It has been for me for a long time. But I want to see if, if we can shed some light on that as we get to our king. This is what Charles Simeon has to say. A holy, reverential fear, revering fear, becomes us in his presence. He is greatly to be feared and, had in, and be had in reverence of all them that are around about him. Our fear, get this, this is what changes everything. Our fear of him should swallow up every other fear in our lives. I love that line. Our fear of him should swallow up every other fear and annihilate every desire that is contrary to his will. An external conformity to his laws will not suffice. He should reign in our hearts and every thought should be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, the fear of God is holy and it is awful. 
And I say that understanding the dual meaning of the word. It is full of awe and also scary for those outside of Jesus Christ. God is the righteous judge and king. A righteous judge and king acts in the best interests of his people, does he not? That's what we expect in our leaders and rulers today. We need them to deal with injustice in the world. We need our king to do that. And we only have one. And we're told to fear him because fear leads us to obedience when it's holy and reverential fear, not paralyzing, crippling fear that leads us cowering in the corner, but awe-inspired fear of God that says, oh God, I am poor in spirit. I mourn the depth of my sin and I am afraid of what I deserve. But you have given me hope and a future through your son, Jesus Christ. And I fall before you submissive, joyfully to what you would have for me. How can missionaries suffer the way they do and say statements that they do like, not I, but Christ who lives in me. How could Stephen look up while stones are being thrown at them? And they were not little stones. And as he is being killed, give glory to God our Father who art in heaven. How could Peter, as tradition states, be so humbled before being crucified that he insisted on being, have, being crucified upside down to make sure that he doesn't detract any glory from our Father and his Son? It's because their fear starts with a humility and a dependence on God, on his son, our king. And with joyful submission that comes out of that. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. Come and see what the Lord has done and he is good. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with reverential treatment in awe of who he is, in fear of his holiness, knowing that we don't measure up. But in that moment of reality, understanding the grace that covers us, that's what true fear brings us to, to a point of grace. There used to be an, a, a, a women's group in Christian circles named Point of Grace. And the point they were referring to is when we come face to face with our brokenness, and with the holiness of God, and we realize that they don't match. I am not holy, God is. And as Isaiah so rightly said, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. And at that moment, Isaiah chapter 6, God dips down and puts a coal on his lips and cleanses him. In the same way, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed and set free. And the grace of God that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds and allow us to live at peace, confident in a sovereign king in a broken world. You see the picture that is being painted. So we serve with joyful submission. Not only do that, but we rejoice with trembling, knowing that he's coming back. How do I interpret rejoicing with trembling? Well, again, I think about it in terms of a couple ways. One, there's a fear in me that I have not been an effective messenger letting my friends, my 
enemies and everybody in between. I don't think I have many enemies, but if I do, uh, letting them know the love of Christ. And it scares me that if I am not honest with them about the person of Jesus Christ, they could be condemned to hell. And so with the joyous return of Jesus Christ that I expect, I do so with trembling because I want to make sure that anyone in my spheres of influence has been introduced to the person of Jesus Christ. I cannot control their response, but I can let them know who he is. And I tremble at the fact that I have failed in that. And I haven't been as open as I should. And I'm inspired by Jed and by others that have made it their life's work to follow where he is, to proclaim boldly the name of Jesus Christ. And Jed is not the only one. I am so thankful that Shirley Chung is with us today because she has made it her life's work to proclaim the great name of Jesus Christ so that all may come to know him. And I could tell you story after story that I've heard from her or from many of you. But it is not them who speak, but Christ in them. And so we respond with trembling and celebrate his rule that he's in control and that he's got a plan, but he's coming back and there's got to be urgency to our mission. We've got to get to the work. You know, we're a society here in Hong Kong that works, uh, statistically speaking, harder than any other society in the world. And I applaud us for that in one sense. But in another, I hope we're doing the right work. I hope we haven't made being busy more important than worshiping our king. Because when we worship our king, it's done with humility and others might not even recognize who he is right away because he doesn't demand attention. Last night, I watched a movie with some friends, some dear, dear friends. And uh, my friend had picked out this movie called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a very odd little movie, but it's very poignant. And there's this scene where the photographer, it's all about this man finding the meaning of life and whether I agree with what they determine the meaning of life to be or not, I don't. But I liked this one man's quote because it reminds me of who we worship. And he says this, he said, beautiful things don't ask for attention. This amazing thing about free will is that God sent his royal begotten son to earth to be born in a manger where the only people that recognized him were some shepherds and a whole host of angels that only those shepherds noticed. Does that not strike you as odd? That Jesus walked this earth being fully God and fully man and a carpenter. There's a scene in the movie, the... um, The Passion of the Christ, where Jesus invents the chair or or a table or something. And it says, this will catch on. And it's this humorous look. But he was a tradesman. He was a man of no physical prowess. Isaiah 53 says this. Listen to this. And this is our king that we are invited to emulate. You see, we all like sheep have gone astray. Oops, wrong verse. He was despised and rejected by men. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And he did that on purpose. You realize that? That our king came to earth as normal or as unattractive as anything on purpose to show us that we are to serve with joy. 
to show us that it's not about the things that the world exalts. Which brings us back in this line of David to what is one of the first lessons David learns before he's a king? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The heart of Jesus Christ is pure. Not was pure, not will be pure, is pure. And we are drawn to that person, to the holiness of God through his son, our king, Jesus Christ. We are not drawn to a people that draw attention to ourselves because we have great musicians, because we worship together here from all over the world. We are to draw attention to the person of Jesus Christ. And we do that not by being loud and obnoxious, but by serving others, considering everything but loss, but the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Another word for king. We don't call attention to ourselves. We point people to Christ so that they can find out there is truth and there is a place for hope in this broken world that we find ourselves. There is refuge. Odd that the word refuge comes up at Christmas time when the world is arguing about what to do with millions of people without a nation and without a home. And Paul taught us that we who are in Christ find our citizenship in heaven. And God throughout his scriptures, as I've told you, tells us that we are sojourners here on earth and we are to seek out those with no home and make a home for them. So while I can't speak to the, politic, the politics of what's going on in the world with refugees, I know there is a place where we can find hope and a home for all eternity. And it's right there. Take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus himself, the Messiah. What did he say? Come, you who are tired, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. This Christmas season, I want to invite you to do one thing. Kiss the sun. Embrace a relationship with him that is about trusting in his sovereign control over a broken world and that draws us to a place of humility that his very son came so that we might have life. And instead of being those people that lament how awful the world is, seeking out ways to give hope to others. Jump into that relationship of kissing the sun. Lord, I thank you for your word. There is chaos going on literally right outside our door right now. And that's the perfect finish. Because while the world is broken, we find refuge in Jesus. And while we are here on earth, Lord, I pray that we would rely on you alone, that our fear would be only of you, not of the things of this world that will pass away but that we would stand on our solid rock on Christ Jesus. And so, God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the promise that your Messiah is coming back. So, Lord, may we live with urgency and invite others to kiss the sun. In your name I pray. Amen.